Hey there, everyone, and welcome to Seriously Risky Business. I'm Adam Wallow, filling in for Pat Gray. Pat's over in the United States, and he's been hobnobbing with our spooky pals out of Fort Meade. He recorded this week's main show live from the NSA's Cyber Collaboration Center with an all-star lineup of Dmitry Arperovich, Rob Joyce, and Morgan Adamski. Feel free to check that one out. Back here on the home front, Tom Uren and I have been pickaxing away in the Risky Biz Minds, and Tom joins me now to talk through this week's newsletter. This episode is sponsored by Resourcely and supported by the Hewlett Foundation's Cyber Initiative. Thanks for joining me, Tom. G'day, Adam. How are you? Oh, not too bad. Doing well. So this week, you covered off a couple of misfortunes that have uh, befallen Russian entities at the hands of Ukrainian hacktivists or the Ukrainian state or maybe a little bit of both. So uh, fill us in. Who's been up in all of Russia's business? So the two different stories. And the first one, a pro-Ukrainian uh, hacktivist group, the Ukrainian Cyber Alliance, just found that there was a ransomware gang known as Trigona that was vulnerable to a, a particular recent Atlassian confluence bug. <laughs> Atlassian always delivers the goods, yes. Go Australia. And so they just got access to Trigona um, and then just took everything they could and wiped everything they could. It's the Lord's work, truly. <laughs> and so here's a, an example of a, a hacktivist group relatively unsophisticated. And when I say relatively, compared to, say, state organisations like, say, Cyber Command or the UK's Cyber Force. Um, and they've just had a, um, I guess, a purple patch with this group. They've taken down everything. I think it'll actually hurt Trigona, but to me it points out that there's opportunities for these kinds of state-based operations to get access to ransomware gangs. They're not impenetrable. Um, we've got an um, on-the-ground case. Now, I think what a state-backed group would do would be very different. Yes, and yeah. I think yeah, the the effects that you would undertake as a state group definitely very different to what you do as a as a hacktivist group or as you know just hackers or even if you're an incident response firm or a threat intelligence firm because I mean quite a few of those have been up in ransomware groups over the years and they all have very different goals once they get there. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, I mean, part of being a hacktivist is that you want to be seen as a hacktivist, and so <laughs> they do the big splashy thing. They're publicising themselves on Twitter. Uh, there was a Facebook post as well. And really their motivation seems to be that uh, we don't like these people. Ransomware gangs are bad. And also Russia gives them a free pass. So therefore, we've got an opportunity. We'll do what we can to take you down. I think a state-backed group would be much more, well, I guess deliberate, but they would try and uh, maximise disruption over time. So maximise, uh, I want to say, the volume of ransomware they stop. And so this will have a dramatic short-term effect. I think Dragona will probably reconstitute itself. Um, like, it, it's not that hard. Or they'll move on to different groups. I think what uh, a state-backed group would do would be to degrade the effectiveness so that the ransomware people continue to invest time and effort in their enterprise, but just get few or diminishing returns. Yes, because I mean, you want to optimize for kind of long-term pain as opposed to short-term flashiness. And as you say, they ransomware crews have proved resilient because they make money, because this is a thing that they can do safely, uh, you know, inside Russia. And 
you know, sure, stealing all their hot wallets right now and, and ruining all of their in-progress work, like, that's a real cost, but compared to the sorts of things that we imagine state groups do, right, long-term degradation of the trust in the ecosystem, yep. long-term messing with people, like, that's perhaps a better use of the, uh, you know, weekly Atlassian bugs. But then, like, if you're a ransomware crew using Confluence, like, it feels like probably you're going to have a bad week every <laughs> week anyway. So, oh, I th- Like my view, I think I've said this a couple of times, is that if you're a state, what you do is you figure out where the most bang for the buck is and yes. then you dedicate your effort there. And so this seems like an opportunistic uh, you know, case. Um, the Ukrainian Cyber Alliance just seems to have just found them and thought, well, here we go. Let's have a let's have a crack here. Um, whereas a state would go, who are the biggest players that are having the most impact, and how do we find a kind of choke point or you know a key pivot point that we can get into and and really cause, uh, I want to say havoc, but not splashy havoc, <laughs> just just long term havoc. Is there a good reason why we are so shy, or we the West um, are so shy about causing splash? I mean. You know, everyone wants to see movie hacking. Everyone wants to see the paragraphs disappearing mid, you know, mid typing with backspace, like you were joking around with uh, the Gruck on uh, Between Two Nerds the other week about some, you know, Snowden documents deleting these yeah. journalists were <laughs> working on them because the spooks are in there violating their uh, various laws. Um, like, are we too shy about, you know, egregious effect? Because, like, maybe there is some value to I think there you is. know spinning around these skulls and 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 <laughs> thunderstruck.wav and all of the other kind of you know classic things that we all want to do as attackers but don't because we're grown ups. I think there's a time and a place, but I and I think the the types of opportunities you use that for are just not that many if you're being sensible and if your aim is long term disruption. And I think when you've got um, cyber capabilities they're just relatively weak compared to other <laughs> other things and so therefore you want to kind of operate in the stealth that's that's my feeling about it um, so I one of the things that I kind of tackle is is this really a hacktivist group um, or is it a state pretending to be a hacktivist because that's pretty Which is much the eternal question with yeah. activists group really isn't it yeah yeah and I think one of the reasons that I think it is a hacktivist group is just that they're splashy and they publicised it. I suppose this leads us to the second story, yes, which I thought was very interesting in that the record reported that according to a source within the Ukraine's SBU, they collaborated with a couple of different hacker groups. Um, now, so two, again, pro-Ukrainian hacker groups say they've breached Alpha Bank, which is is a big Russian, big Russian domestic bank. Yep. And stolen customer records and release some of this data privately. So Alpha Bank denies it. It, My gut feeling is it's probably true. Who knows? But the uh, and partly that's because they've got an SBU source that says that they were um, involved in the operation, but did not provide further details. And so, you know, is this I'm very curious about this. Is this we're involved in the operation because we got the data? <laughs> yes. <laughs> After is, the fact, you know, that's a that's a you know we've seen Ukraine use data that's been leaked from various Russian organisations. Totally makes sense. But that kind of continuum of you know state directed, state sponsored, state yep. sanctioned, states you know we don't know where on that 
we're kind of talking about here. And, you know, given they're in the middle of a war, probably all of them are fair game. But yeah, it's absolutely. an interesting distinction. Yeah, yeah. So Gruck and I, and I've written the newsletter as well, have talked several times about how it's actually difficult to take advantage of hacker goodwill. So very early on in the invasion of Ukraine, there was, um, you know, the Ukraine IT army. And there's a number of kind of structural reasons where it's hard for a state to take advantage of them. Like, how do you even know who these people are? How do you trust them with sensitive information? Um, You can't task them with important stuff because... I mean, probably, you know, 10% of them are Russians pretending to be hacktivists. Exactly, yes. And hacker OPSEC is not known to be super robust. And there's just a bunch of reasons why you know, forward planning using hackers is really difficult, yeah. especially as when you don't even know who they are. Yeah, but at the same time, I think that if you're in Ukraine's position, you're in an existential fight for your survival, it probably makes sense to try and take advantage of them. And so have yes. have they cracked the nut of how do you get hackers to do something that's meaningful for you? And so uh, I'm just really interested in what involved is the, the, the word that they used, actually means in this case. Uh, one of the other things that uh, you wrote about this week uh, is the International Red Cross put out some guidance for how to be a good cyber belligerent. Yeah, yeah. So the um, a, a couple of weeks ago, I wrote about an opinion piece that was authored by two Red Cross lawyers, just independently. So they work for the Red Cross. They've been thinking about these issues and they wrote a piece about how to behave properly if you're a hacktivist. And they're really, uh, like the Red Cross's whole thing when it comes to warfare is uh, what's interna- called international humanitarian law or the rules of war. And it's it's basically framed around protecting civilians as much as you can in warfare. Um, and so this is an advisory board report that's got a whole lot of people who've thought about these issues. Um, I recognise many of the names, uh, good people. And the idea is more broadly for all the people involved in conflict, armed conflict, what do you do in the, they they call it the digital threats. How do you protect civilians from digital threats? And so uh, like there's the people actually involved, belligerents, they call them in the report, and I'm really sceptical that this kind of report will make any difference to people actually involved in conflict. Um, you look at the <laughs> conflicts that are happening and, um, you know, IHL uh, humanitarian law, is, is it's mostly notable for when it's broken, which is way too often. And so I, I don't see that cyber yes. participants are going to pay attention. And to some degree, that's justifiable in a sense in that cyber just isn't that good at, at harming people. I think it's it's kind of provides an additive effect. Um, but when you're like actually killing people on the ground, I think that, you know, cyber just doesn't make much difference. It's pretty secondary compared to the myriad wonderful ways that we, uh, you know, maim and kill each other yeah. when, we're, when we're engaged in conflict. And the Cyber aspects of it, as you say, like the the we haven't really seen you know modulo a couple of attacks and like say power systems uh, in Ukraine that were pure cyber. You know, it's rare that we see a just cyber situation. And some of the blending of civilian infrastructure with military infrastructure, especially yep. like satellite communications at the beginning of Ukraine war, like that was an interesting case where you know perhaps some of the 
civilian infrastructure operators may not have thought through the extent to which they are also military targets and have yep. that kind of where the crossover is. Um, and Ukraine has illustrated for us a bunch of those, you know, sort of points of connection. Yeah, yeah. So uh, that, that was the most two. interesting part of the report where it provides advice for tech companies and for humanitarian organisations. And I thought that was interesting because exactly what you talked about, SpaceX kind of made itself a target very early on by providing service yes. to Ukraine. And one of the recommendations in the Red Cross report is is like, and I'm paraphrasing because the recommendations were very long, but it's just consider what you're providing and to who and whether that makes you a military target and what you need to do to protect particularly your employees, but civilians in general. Um, and another one was keep military and civilian infrastructure separate if possible. Um, and so those were both examples that I thought, oh, SpaceX managed to sort of blunder its way directly into the middle of those two recommendations. Um, and from my point of view, SpaceX providing service in Ukraine was the right thing to do. Like, I, I don't think that was, it was probably not a smart business decision, but it was, um, well, actually, I could cut it both ways, right? In the short term, you know, you don't get a lot of extra profit. You get a lot of potential risk from a Russian action. But at the same time, you demonstrate the usefulness of that capability to a military consumer. Yes, and I think that's probably certainly helped them planning to sell, you know, kind of a licensed version of the of the constellation to the U.S. government for military use. And so, you know, in that respect, it's probably yeah. pretty good advertising for them to have their network being used for Ukrainian artillery correction or, or whatever else. So it's a it's it's definitely double edged. History is going to judge, I guess, whether or not it was <laughs> actually good for business. Yeah, that's uh, right for SpaceX or not. Possibly it was short term bad strategically a good demonstration of capabilities. So I thought it was very interesting that those two recommendations, we, we've got an example, a real-life example of how you can kind of sleepwalk your way into those problems. Um, and, you know, some of the other recommendations are kind of what you think. Um, but the whole piece made me think about why would you even talk about humanitarian law? Why, why even think about it? I, I guess if you go back to late 2020 or even 2021, um, the threat of a war in Europe seemed very, very distant. If you're at the head of an organisation thinking about business risks, you probably chuck that one in the back shelf and and don't really plan for it all. Whereas now... It's certainly not the highest on your list of priorities when, I mean, as you said, back in 2020, we were probably worried about global financial crisis still, about a rerun of, you know, issues with banking sector and, and so on. And the idea that we would be in a you know, land conflict in Europe seems ridiculous. And then at the same time, you know, we're sitting here looking at the Taiwan Strait and, you know, if you're doing business in China right now, what sensible risk choices would you be making yeah. right now if you're a biz... You know, looking down the barrel of that. So, like, it's just so hard to predict. And, and it's, as you say, there are so many things to worry about in this world. And, you know, humanitarianly using cyber seems pretty far down the list. Yeah, I actually think the reason is that uh, using that kind of human rights framework helps you make decisions as a company. One example I like is that Facebook commissioned a human rights assessment of end-to-end -end encryption. And when you look at it through a human rights point of view, it's not 
is an, is end-to-end encryption good or is it bad? It's we've got different people who will benefit from end-to-end encryption, which is most people most of the time. However, there are cases where some people suffer because, um, uh, you know, criminals take advantage of it, of end-to-end encryption to hide their activity. So how do we balance those two um, equities? And I think human rights is a way of thinking about those problems that allows you to make choices that are justifiable. They're not the black or white encryption is good, so everyone must have encryption and that's it. That's that's certainly a thing that we in the tech industry have probably not always done a great job of thinking about how our products and services and, and choices fit into the world overall. So that's a you know it's an important insight and, and thank you very much for that, Tom. <laughs> so I think we'll wrap it up there. Uh, nice to chat to you as always and uh, I'm sure we will see some interesting work out of you next week and may well be back for some more. Thanks a lot, Adam. Thanks, Tom. <laughs>